You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. If you like like music, a good musician has to put music before everything, and that's what I've always done. Go look down on this little cottage in Ireland and said, "That little boy there." He's the little boy that I'm going to use to save Irish music. Shay went to London when we were 13. I love the drink, he gets, he goes. The lyrics are always about fighting, drinking, dying, living. You know, the things that everybody does. Where we were the hottest live band in London. Shane McGowan, the visionary, one of the finest writers of the century. Then they went on a world tour. It was nice of excitement. And then things went wrong. Yeah. Horribly wrong. He went away. You're up. And he didn't come back. Not the Shane that I ever knew. And then doctors told me that he had six months to live. If I really wanted to die, I'd be dead already. Well, I'm delighted to announce the Special Lifetime Achievement Award to Shane McGowan. Your songs broadened our sense of ourselves. Redemption, sorrow, the ordinary person's story. You were pretty queen of New York. Are you content with what you've achieved? No, I want to achieve more. Actually, we're better when we're sober, but it's not as much fun, so we get drunk. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with director Julian Temple about his latest film, which is called Crock of Gold. A few rounds with Shane McGowan. Shane McGowan, for folks who may not know, is the lead singer of The Pogues, a punk band that's been around for quite a while, and I had the absolute pleasure of talking with Mr. Temple about this, as well as some of his earlier works, including Earth Girls Are Easy and a lot of the music videos that he's done over the years. I hope you enjoy the interview. You have had one hell of a career, just even looking just at your body of work when it comes to music videos. I didn't realize that you were behind some of the most popular music videos, at least stuff I saw so many times on MTV, like breaking the law or come on Eileen. What was that like for you working on those? It was a very exciting time because you felt you were part of um, quite a small group of people in London creating a new art form. And it was very free in the early days because the record companies had no idea what you were doing. Uh, You know, they didn't even know what a film frame was or a sprocket or, you know, so 
as long as you could convince the band of some crazy idea that you had while you were just falling asleep on the pillow, you could have these mad films going around the world in heavy rotation in Tokyo, in LA, in Brazil, in Paris, you know, in Delhi, you know, mad. And, you know, it was two weeks later and and, and it was going round and round. And, it, you know, it was a new way of watching films. People up to that point were only used to watching film once. If you saw a movie, you never saw it again. It was before, you know, VHS and um, the idea that you bought a video or rented a video or DVD or whatever. You were creating a new language that would disseminate information over time, a bit like those, those cold capsules that say, you know, 24-hour slow release so you'd create a kind of mad riddle, a very compacted, fractured riddle, really, that people had to watch a whole lot of times before they kind of got certain versions of what it might mean, which I think was exciting because, you, you know, I was very aware of not wanting to really kill the mystique of the music, the mystery, because everyone has their own version of a song when, you know, when they hear it song no one really hears it exactly the same way so you didn't want to just like crush that I, I think quite a lot of videos do that now so yeah it was very exciting very free it was like having a personal diary of ideas just going around the world you know how long would a typical shoot take for a video back then you know the budget was always like for one day but you did about two days two nights and another half day you know it was like crazy you know so into it no one really wanted to stop Till the money ran out. But yeah, no, it wasn't very long. It was a good a good way of learning, you know, experimenting. Because you always cut to the drummer if you made a terrible mistake. <laughs> You've got this idiot thing, this. Rum, rum, Who were some of your favorite bands to work with? Oh, the Kinks. I mean, I was a childhood, you know, people used to ask me, are you a Stones man or a Beatles man? And I'd say, I'm, not, I'm a Kinks man, of course. So, it, you know, it was great fun to work with them because they were my childhood favorites. Pistols, you know, were just extraordinary uh, to work with. You know, not easy. They loved kicking the camera out of your hands and they said Vicious Perfected, you know, 20-foot long-distance gob missile spitting right at the lens, you know, so soft focus effect that he created for you. And it also went all over your hair and head. <clears throat> so you look like Medusa gob dribbling. The Stones, I loved the Stones as a kid and... Um, I kind of worked with them at a good moment when Keith Richards kind of came back into reality life and reclaimed his place. So there were a lot of sparks, you know, it's my band. The thing of him and Mick was kind of interesting. David Bowie, I love working with David. He was very kind to me and, uh, you know, great collaborative ideas, man, you know, wonderful to work with him. I've worked with lots of Neil Young, man. I love Neil Young. It's just the most honest, real, beautiful person tom petty I had a great time with bob dylan I, I you know i worked with a lot of luckily uh, a lot of great people now you are famous for being very involved in the punk scene you talked about the sex pistols i'm very curious when was the first time that you saw the pokes the pogues i saw like 83 or 83 something like that you know the venue in london it was like the return of a punk energy that had kind of dissipated in 79 or something you know, and you had that whole new romantic thing and the guys with one finger keep synthesizer music. I think people were very excited to feel that energy and that uh, that kind of aggressive twist on Irish music, particularly giving a voice to the London Irish community, which had never really had a, an outlet 
and Shane McGowan created this incredible sense of bringing this community, which was a big part of London, together. So they were very proud and, and wild <laughs> night, which was, you know, all built around Shane and his vision of, uh, of what could be done with Irish music to kick it into shape or pieces or whatever he did with it. <laughs> did you know him pretty well before you started the documentary about him? Well, I, you know, I'm not close with him. Um, I knew him in the punk time. You know, there's footage of mine, you know, and I did the first interview with him that where he's got the peroxide blonde hair. When Sid Vicious left the punk crowd and joined the Pistols, there was a kind of, he was the focal figure in the crowd and, and there was a vacancy for that focal figure. And, and Shane kind of stepped up to the, the plate, really. And you, your camera would just travel across the mad pogoing crazy nutcases but it would always end on Shane who seemed more intensely into it than anyone else you know how did you decide I want to make him the next subject of my documentary I didn't decide at all he asked me to do it and I was um, very uncertain whether I wanted to put myself through it he comes with a major reputation for being you know if you get within 10 yards of him uh, it can be painful you know he's got a difficult rep you know and he is difficult but that's because he's Shane McGowan if he wasn't difficult he would not be Shane McGowan so I was weighing up whether I really wanted to go through the the kind of pain threshold that I knew it would entail you know in the end when Johnny Depp came on board I you know we both knew Johnny I, I knew Johnny he used to babysit my daughter Juno for, you know before he was a megastar because I had to spend all my money on laser discs so he could come around and watch these weird movies that I'd got from Japan on Laserdisc. Anyway, so um, when he said to me, why don't you do it? I just felt, you know, we had some backing, some, you know, he could talk with Shane as well and keep the whole thing on from capsizing, you know, which it was likely to do and did do a few times. So I took the risk. I took the plunge. And the first thing he said to me, there's going to be no fucking interviews. I'm not doing any interviews. <laughs> which is, okay, that's great. Fuck off, go away and make your fucking film. It's your film, you know. I don't don't ask me about it. Which was probably the best thing that ever happened to to us on the film. Um, because it sent us scurrying around desperately ringing up journalists and saying, Have you got anything in the attic? You know, Shane McGowan in the uh, you know, in Berlin in eighty-five, you know, any micro cassettes that you might still have from your interviews. So we got a lot of wonderful kind of fragmentary moments, very close, spontaneous, real, uh, when Shane was at his peak, you know, much better uh, than sitting him down, kind of wrinkly old rock star in an armchair in front of a big camera and a crew. You get a projection of what they want to be at that moment, but that, you know, it's not very real. That was good that he didn't do interviews. We then did need him talking somehow and had the idea of trying to, see where the conversations would work with him, whether he'd like to. We started with Johnny because that was comfortable. And that did work, although, you know, it's a bit like David Attenborough trying to film a snow leopard. You know, you, you stick these cameras up and you wait, basically. You know, the first day, Johnny didn't show. Then Shane didn't show. On the second day, on the third day, they both showed in front of the camera and with their drinks and talk for about eight hours and I, I only got three minutes of usable stuff, five minutes. 
usable f- stuff because they'd be talking about Jerry Lee Lewis for an hour and then go off on the Chris Christopherson odyssey. And I was thinking, it's not about Chris Christopherson, it's about it's you, Shane. Why don't you talk about yourself? So he was playing games even then. You know, he, he would talk for hours about Chris Christopherson. I, I, I didn't know he even thought about Chris Christopherson, but it's kind of interesting in its own way. But it wasn't helpful in terms of our emotional narrative that we were trying to construct about him, you know. But what was really good about those conversations is that you got a different version of Shane each time. You know, with Johnny Depp, he's one thing, Buddy's drinking. You know, it's a bit of an act, double act. With Bobby Gillespie, you get the, you know, the Viper, the, you know, going for your jugular, uh, Shane McGowan, you know, <laughs> aggressive and terrifying his victims type thing. And then, for example, Jerry Adams, you get the kind of schoolboy Shane looking up to the, the commander in chief or whatever it is, you know. Shane is a great mythologizer, self-mythologizer, as we all are. You know, you can't really get through life without making up a version of yourself that you kind of can deal with or makes you feel good or whatever, which is probably nothing to do with who you really are. But he's very, you know, a lot of rock stars are like that, but he's a magical self-creator of myths and tells different versions of the same event, you know, the classic unreliable narrator in a way um so you know it was great to to be able to piece together this kind of cubist fractured three-dimensional portrait of the different facets of shade mcgowan well not only do you have mcgowan now or now-ish and then you've got the archive footage but then you're also using animation you're using clips from different films how are you deciding what movies to draw from, and then also can you tell me a little bit about the animations and uh, how you got those? Yeah, um, well, in terms of movies, I was looking to try try and create a kind of emotional portrait of of Ireland that he grew up in, and, uh, you know, documentaries are wonderful sources for this kind of a film where you are trying to time travel back to Ireland in the 50s, which is pretty much like Ireland in the 18th century, you know, horses and carts and chains caught the last moment of no electricity and no running water and no television, obviously, um, you know, when he was about seven or eight. Uh, but he saw this ancient, unchanged island. And to, to get that emotional, the kind of subconsciousness of a culture, you, you, I think you have to look at fiction films as well, John Ford films or uh, a lot of interesting, you know, I knew very little about uh, Irish cinema, early Irish cinema, so it was kind of researching that and looking at it and trying to weave it into the, the more documentary aspects to create a almost a fairy tale. Shane's view, version of his childhood is like a Grimm's fairy tale, you know. Uh, it's, um, and animation uh, amplifies that sense of something, you know, magical and wondrous and, and poetic, surreal. I mean, I've used animation, you know, I, I made sex pistols into cartoon characters and there you go. In my life, taken from me as a result. You know, you're, we're not fucking cartoon characters. What are you doing? You know. And now, uh, you know, you have bands like Gorillaz who are just cartoons. So times change, I guess. But it was fun using the kind of history of animation in, in tandem to Shane's life. So, you know, you begin with that kind of fairy tale, almost Disney esque thing of the Emerald Isle and, and the Chosen One in the little cottage in the snow at Christmas fairy tale of new york but then using you know like the 55 
uh, animated version of um, Animal Farm, the George Orwell film, was was the inspiration for when he's on the farmyard getting his first hit of whiskey. And then, you know, the Beano was a famous English comic strip. So we had that at his school in in London. We we had a kind of R. Crumb acid trip, psychedelic cartoons, anime when he fell out of the van in Japan. So I had a lot of fun with the different genres and you know, mixing it up. It's a lot of moving pieces. How long did it take you to put this together? Well, I'm trying to remember. I mean, the lockdown made it longer because we couldn't access the archive libraries. They were closed last spring. So we finished it. When did I begin? 2019. So we finished it, you know, in about a year. But then it took another three or four, five months even to get all the archive out so we could finish the film. So probably 18 months, but really a year. When you're working on something, are you solely dedicated to that? Or do you have other things kind of floating around that you're working on at the same time? I have done two films at once. <laughs> it is possible. It's not, you know, it's very tiring. Uh, it's exciting, but I do tend to, you know, try and concentrate on one thing at a time. But you've obviously got to try and come up with something, a number of things to do next, because you've got to have all these balls in the air, like juggling in case one actually lands and goes, you know. So there's a lot of time prepping ideas and getting them ready to, to go out and pitch and see if people might finance them. I've, I've been doing a lot of that in the lockdown, various projects, trying to get them ready to go, you know, which is, is I haven't been filming, obviously. Uh, well, not obviously, but I haven't been. But I hope to get back in the groove as soon as I can. Usually I ask what's the most difficult thing about making the film that you're working on, and it sounds like just your subject was probably the most difficult thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I find films generally traumatic you know i do sometimes freak out and it's it's about riding that you know for i on, on london babylon i did a film about london and uh, i had so much archive that i and it was about my hometown it meant a lot to me but i was going round and round and getting more and more f- spooked and weird and depressed you know and a mental kind of breakdown <laughs> and i've had that a lot on films i was sacked from absolute beginners and i wish it was a nightmare that whole story I had a difficult time. I did a film with Mickey Rourke and Tupac. You know, so they're all quite traumatic. But then what, what you feel is that you're drowning in in the project, particularly in archive, you know. So about 20,000 hours I had on London, you know, which is a crazy amount. And I watched it all a lot of it fast forward. <laughs> but slam on the brakes when you get a vibe that something's interesting. You know, I quite like going out on the on the edge when I make a film. You know, so you're making it while you're asleep, you're making it while you're eating. You know, it's, it becomes obsessive thing because there's so many moving parts in these films. It's all in the editing, really. The, this kind of film. I'm hoping to get back to doing some low budget fiction. I'd like to take some of the things I've learned from from the freedom of doing these films, which I don't really see as documentaries. I just see them as some weird type of cinema. You know. What was your experience like making Earth Girls Are Easy? Pretty good, actually. That was one of the less traumatic ones. I was attracted to it because, you know, I was an alien in Los Angeles, you know, and and the valley was like, San Fernando Valley was like the weirdest place, another planet for me, you know. So I thought, well, I can do this film, you know, three strip Technicolor aliens 
you know, learn English from Jerry Lewis and then get lost in the valley and then, you know, do a bit of social anthropology in the mix of this kind of wacky comedic thing, really. Um, I had a great time with, you know, with the cast, Damon Wayans and Jim Carrey and Jeff and Gina. I had a great team. I had a great, Dennis Gassner was one of his first things, you know, the great production designer. Oliver Stapleton, my friend from film school, we were shooting it. I mean, it's not everyone's cup of tea, I'm sure, but you know, it's still in the in the zeitgeist, in the ether, in some way. You know, it's about a girl defecting from uh, Southern California, basically. It took me a lot to see it when it was originally out. I had to drive probably an hour away from my home, which was unusual back then. Just to, there was only one theater in the area showing it, but I. Absolutely fell in love with that. Oh, great. Well, it looks good on a big screen. I saw it in Houston at the museum there, that big museum, whatever it's called. And then they did a season of my stuff there, and, and I hadn't seen it on a big screen. You know, um, there's some shitty DVD of it. Yeah, and the scope and the Technicolor, you know, it was it's a bit, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> you even made a movie about my hometown, which is Detroit. I did. I loved Detroit. I, I was amazed by <laughs> Detroit. I love the music from Detroit. I've been making films not just about musicians, but about music cities, you know, great fountains of music, which Detroit obviously is one of the greatest. I did one about London, which was driven by the music. I've done one about, I did one about Havana and one about Rio, one about Ibiza and one about Glastonbury, which is a, a city for two weeks. I like using music and archive as time travel device. I don't really like history lessons, you know, but, um, I, you know, I, I enjoy reading. But if you can get that sense of kind of excitement of time traveling through a city and the music is, is the memory, the emotional memory of a city is in its, in its music and its movies. So that combination is, is high octane shit. You know, it's great to mess with it. I'm planning one about L.A., actually, but a TV series about L.A., but through the music, you know, from the beginning, from the old um, songs of old California, Spanish California, right through, you know, to now. If memory serves, you were working on one about Marvin Gaye. Is that still happening or is that dead in the water? That was another major trauma. I mean, we shot five weeks and then we're told that there wasn't any money left. <laughs> it's quite late in the day to hear that. Normally, if the film's going to hit the rocks, it happens you know, without having shot that much. So it was a bit of a wrench, a, you know, a car crash, really. So, yeah, no, I, I, I didn't finish it. I had to give up on it, which is a great shame. You know, it was, it was a story about Marvin Gaye in, in Ostend, which he was a complete fish out of water. He'd never heard of Ostend, but ended up there for like nearly two years trying to you know, get his life back together. And he wrote Sexual Healing and had the whole comeback from coming out of that time he spent in Ostend. and. This weird boxing promoter convinced him to go there. So it was a really nice little look into this guy's existence, really, but but in that specific time frame. You talked about film being history, and I did appreciate just how much Shane McGowan's history played into the history of England and especially the Troubles. And having the leader of Sinn Féin as part of your documentary was great to be able to see him and hear what some of his memories were as far as that time period. Yeah, I mean, that was really one of the reasons I decided to do the film, because it it gave me an opportunity to look at the story of England and Ireland 
through Shane and learn a lot that I didn't know. I mean, they don't teach it in English schools, you know, quite understandably, probably, because it's it's not a very nice story what England did to Ireland. But I was keen to to explore that and learn about it and um, find out, you know, Shane's relation to it and how, how that, you know, was a kind of motor. I didn't realise he saw the Pogues as this crusade to, you know, redeem Irishness, really, in, in, in a way, you know. So, yeah, no, I learned a lot. And I hope the film conveys some of that, that history, you know, microcosm really but uh, you know it's a heroic story freedom first country to well i guess america got there first but later on ireland was really shocking that they they took on the empire you know we think about punk and how were women treated how were minorities treated and this whole idea of punk being a melting pot was it inclusive was it exclusive and this idea i never had thought about it before as far as how is this irish kid fit into the punk scene or irish people fit into the punk scene so it was really enlightening that way yeah no it was interesting to realize that shane you know he was a very troubled kid and teenager wasn't he so in punk, he found acceptance. He found his, they say, he found his tribe kind of thing, you know, the energy that he could put into the music and, hear, you know, connecting with the music and then finally having his own band in a way saved him on one level. It, you know, obviously he's, he's carried on having, having issues with addiction and things. You know, everybody was kind of welcome if they were brave enough to be part of it. You didn't have to be, you know, the sexiest guy on the block, you know, and and, and, in, and women were, were a very important part of punk in terms of the creative identity of it. I don't want to be indelicate, but it feels like there's something going on with McGowan. Does he have MS or something else, or is it just that he was on drugs for so long? Has that taken such a toll on his body? I think that's part of it. Yeah, definitely. But he did have a, you know, a very bad fall, which is why he's in this wheelchair. So he is on painkillers and morphine and you know obviously that does mess with you i mean he's not really drinking he doesn't drink to get smashed drunk it's just to keep the engine running i think you know just sipping constantly from morn dawn till dusk well he's not up at dawn but um he's not in bed at dusk either (laughs) it's quite funny because you know other people glug it like if i'm drinking i tend to knock back a a bottle of wine quite easily, whereas he's he's actually in moderation and his his wine. We talked a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on while you're working on this. What do you know? What's next for you? I don't really. I, mean, I don't have it set up. I've got. I'm I'm going out with people on this LA project. Hopefully, in the next couple of weeks, trying to get a get it on one of the one of the outlets platforms. It's an eight part series. I have a, another project which I've been trying to do again. I got told seven days before we started shooting <laughs> that the film was off that time about Christopher Marlowe. I don't know if you know who he is, a Shakespearean era, mad, roaring boy, uh, swashbuckling poet who invented the language that Shakespeare then went on to use and was, was killed by the Secret Service, probably with a dagger through his eye at age 29. So he, you know, elements of punk in him for sure. Yeah, we're working on a TV drama series about Marlowe. I've been asked to do a film about Dennis Hopper, which I'm we're trying to see if we can get that set up. I got other things, The Kinks. I'm 
I've got my perennial dream of making a drama about the brothers in the Kings. So, you know, when I get one saying yes, the other one has to say no. So we kind of got the money, you know, to do it, but they're not being the easiest. Uh, you know, I like difficult people, as you can tell. It seems like it, yeah. I mean, when one of your first gigs is working with the Sex Pistols, I can tell you like difficult people. Yeah, well, you learn to survive them. The baptism of fire, sex whistles, yeah. Mr. Temple, thank you so much for your time. This is fantastic. Oh, I'm very happy to talk to you. I'm sorry about the haircut. It will. I'll be reverting to my um, punk crop soon. I look like an old hippie, but I um, promise you I'm not. But I soon ended up upon the old main drag There the he-mails and the she-mails Paraded in style And the old man with the money Would flash you a smile In the dark of an alley You would work for a five For a swift one of the rest Down on the old main drag in the cold winds and nights, the old town was chill. But there were boys in the cafes who'd give you cheap pills. If you didn't have the money, you'd cajole and you'd beg. There was always lots of chewing on the old main drag. One evening as I was lying down in Leicester Square I was picked up by the coppers and kicked in the balls Between the metal doors at Vine Street I was beaten and mauled And I ruined my good looks for the old man drag In that shoot station the old ones who were on the way out with dribble and vomit and gravel and shout And the coppers would come along and push them about And I wished I could escape from the old main drag And now I am lying here, I have had too much booze I've been spat on and shut on and raped and abused I know that I am dying and I wish I could beg For some money to take me from the old main drag
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.